This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. This morning, I have the privilege of welcoming our guest speaker, Dave Taylor. It's been such a gift for us as a church to be going through the book of Acts, to be seeing the gospel going forth, the inclusion of the Gentiles, the gospel being for all people, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And what's amazing is not just reading of the stories in scripture, but seeing this same gospel still being proclaimed today and still having the same transforming effect all over the world. And so um, Dave, he is the lead pastor of Sovereign Grace Church in Sydney, Australia. He's here with his wife, Emma. Uh, they, he planted this church in 2010. He moved to Sydney with his family. He continues to serve there as the lead pastor. He also serves on the Sovereign Grace Church's leadership team as the director of global missions. And he has the joy of serving all over the world on behalf of our family of churches. And, and Dave has already served us so well this weekend. He met with our global missions team on Saturday morning. He met with us as a pastoral team, his wife Emma with some of the pastor's wives. And to be with, with them, to be with Dave in particular, is to be stirred and reminded that we are, what a gift it is that we as a church, as God's people, are able to be on mission, to go and proclaim the gospel that God in his kindness has said that we, we as a church get to go and see lives changed. And what I love about Dave is he's not only a wonderful preacher of God's word, but he is an example. And so what he's going to preach to us this morning, he is living out and serving us significantly. So please welcome Dave as he comes to preach this morning. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Good morning. You can say good morning. Yeah, there we go. I bring you greetings from Sovereign Grace Church, Sydney. So good day in my where I'm from. How you going is the way we say it. It is such an honor to be with you this morning and to preach God's word to you. You know, particularly on Baby Dedication Week. I love Baby Dedication Weeks. It appears that this is a Sovereign Grace example of church growth around the world. I asked one of the pastors, how often do you do, do you do baby dedications? And he said, well, as and when needed, which is about every two weeks. So I think that's wonderful. <laughs> to see a church growing with babies. I also think it's wonderful to see the way you model local mission as a church, your campus ministry, the amount of people I've spoken to in the last two days that got saved, that met Jesus through the campus ministry. You're a wonderful example of a mission-foundationed church. So thank you for your example. Thank you for modeling what it is to trust in the gospel and to be passionate about taking it out. You know, to me, as the Global Missions Director, as an Australian, you are global missions. You're overseas for me. And to, to see with the, way, the way the Lord is using you to reach out here, thank you so much for your example. You know, Sovereign Grace Churches now has the privilege of serving in 46 different countries, and so over six continents, and you are a fine example of the way we're seeking to build churches all the way around the world. And so thank you so much for all that you do. And it is a joy to bring God's word to you this morning. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 10. Martin Luther once said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Isn't that wonderful? 
We don't just sit around some word that's historical data that we enjoy and spend time in. No, this word is alive. It comes after us. God, through his grace and his mercy, through the preached word, he wants to reach us. Preaching is God speaking to us when we read his word. And so let's read together chapter 10, verses through 11 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I do thank you that it is alive. It does come after us. Lord, I pray through your Holy Spirit that you would freshly come after us this morning. Would you go after our hearts? Would our lives be changed? Would be ever increasingly equipped and stirred by your word? Lord, who's going to tell them? May it be us. May we be your hands and feet. May we preach the gospel. Gather us, Lord, as we gather around your word today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. What do you do when you find yourself stuck down a mine some 245 feet below ground and then discover that you are completely trapped. That was the situation that Randy Fogel found himself in on the 14th to the 24th of July 2002, and this is his story. On July the 24th, 2002, Randy Fogel went to work at the Kew Creek Mine in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, expecting an ordinary day at the office, just like everyone else. Never mind that his office is a dank subterranean labyrinth 240 feet below ground where the only light comes from a flickering helmet lamp and a mistake can cost you your life. Randy had been a coal miner for 20 years and he took such challenges in his stride. He had a reputation for toughness, but little did Randy know how his toughness was about to be tested to the limit. His ordinary day's work was interrupted about 9 o'clock in the evening by a frantic voice crackling over his radio. We hit water. We hit water. Get out. Randy's fellow miners had accidentally drilled through an adjacent flooded mine. The miners scrambled to escape, doubled over as they ran to avoid the low ceilings, as millions of gallons of water came swirling and gushing about their ankles. One team escaped, but Randy's team did not. Cut off from their only exits by flooded corridors, the nine men found themselves trapped in a chamber only four feet deep and 18 feet wide, filled nearly to the top with freezing water. These men had no shortage of strength and courage. They were fighters and survivors, hard men who faced danger on a daily basis. Randy had played football at high school. His brother recollected how one time they'd been deer hunting, and Randy had opted not to wear gloves even though it was five below zero. That's the kind of man he was. 
If anyone could find a way out of this mess, it was surely Randy and his fellow miners. But it didn't take long, however, for the terrible truth to become clear. Randy was helpless. As the minutes turned to hours and the hours turned to days, the water was receding. But by day three, hypothermia and despair were setting in. In and of their own strength, there was nothing they could do. Resourcefulness and toughness weren't going to be enough to save them. All they could do was hope and wait. Within hours, Randy's story made front-page headlines and gripped the nation. A rescue effort began immediately. Rescue workers, fellow miners, families, and friends worked and prayed day and night to save the lives of these brave men. It was a slow, tiring, and difficult work, but nothing could shake their determination. They began by running a pipe into the subterranean chamber, pumping in hot air, a move that kept Randy and his friends alive. When the miners banged on the pipe, it gave their rescuers the first affirmation that they were still alive and fueled their determination. And eventually, after 77 hours of huddling in the frigid darkness, surviving and thinking about loved ones, Randy Fogel was finally raised to the surface in a yellow rescue cage with his eight fellow companions following shortly after. All had survived with strong spirits and only minor injuries. And thanks to the devoted work of their rescuers, they had stared death in the face and yet come back to tell their stories. You know, I'll never forget the first time I heard that story because for the very first time, I was just so affected by it. I was so affected by it because for a start, I don't like small spaces. And so the thought of actually being buried alive like that is like, this is a nightmare. You know, it lasts about 20 minutes before I die. You know, just the thought of being trapped like this is one of those overwhelming realities. So it affected me to hear the story. But more than that, and even more acutely than that, I couldn't help but be affected by it as I was reminded of the horrible and frightening reality that all mankind is in prior to this great salvation. See, prior to this great salvation, the Bible is clear that we were all once alienated from God. We were all once hostile in mind. We were all doing evil deeds. Each one of us in the room outside of the saving grace of Jesus was down the mine. We were all dead in our transgressions and sins. We were by nature children of God's righteous wrath. We were down the mine with our face down uninterested in the Lord, not even seeking escape because we didn't even realize we were there. And we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Our situation prior to salvation could not have been more alarming. And outside of the finished work of Jesus Christ and his saving grace, the world in which we live, people all around us in their hundreds and thousands are in that exact situation. They are down the mine. And cut off from the Lord. And not looking for him. And in God's kindness, he's called us to go to him. He's called us to go to these people, has he not? In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, we read, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What good news it is to know that he is with us to the end of the age. 
What good news it is to know that he will never leave us nor forsake us. But we must understand one of the greatest calls on our lives is to go and tell people about Jesus. To go and make disciples of the wonderful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the greatest call, I believe, on our lives. And yet, if we're honest, it is also one of the most daunting, isn't it? It can be overwhelming at times to think that he's called little old us to tell people about him and go and make disciples of all nations. And the thing that I so love then about this text that we have this morning in front of us in Romans 10 is it's here that Paul takes us by the hand and wants to explain to us that for each and every one of us as Christians, we have a powerful and potent weapon in our hearts and in our hands. And it is the powerful and potent weapon of the gospel. Not only is God himself with us, he has given us a weapon that can change people's lives, boom, in a moment. We can't argue people in, we can't nice people in, but we have a powerful and potent weapon that can change people's lives. And it's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So I have three points this morning as we work through the text. Number one, the gospel's reach. Number two, the gospel's charge. And then finally, the gospel's privilege. But I come really with one hope. And it's the hope that we would all be stirred afresh this morning to mission. I think it's something that your church models so wonderfully well. And so I know I'm preaching to the choir. But I just want to come alongside you all the more and say, keep doing it. Keep trusting in him. Keep brandishing this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And tell people in Knoxville about who he is and why he came. Three points then, and here's the first, the gospel's reach. You know, chapter one of the book of Romans, Paul has already established the power of the gospel. And it's incredible. In Romans 1 verse 16, we read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God, the dynamis of God. In this verse, he equates the power of the mighty hand of God, the one who marks off the heavens with the breadth of his hand, the one who spins the galaxies, the one that puts the stars in their place and sustains them that not one is missing. This power of God, he equates with the glorious gospel. And he tells us, listen, this gospel which you share, I'm not ashamed of it, because it's the power of God for salvation unto, to all who believe. As you preach it, as you declare it, it's like a sticky bomb that you attach to people's lives. And in God's kindness, boom, that can go off in a moment's notice. Cornelius Plantinger talks about it this way. He says, human sin is stubborn, as it is, but not as stubborn as the grace of God, and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. Amen to that. Human sin is stubborn, but it is no defender of the grace and power of God. When the gospel is preached and declared, we're telling of a story that is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It's how you got here. Somebody telling you about Jesus. And in his mercy, that bomb of the gospel went off in your life. It is a powerful and potent weapon. And it is that line of teaching that the Apostle Paul continues first right here, verses 11 through 13. Look with me together. He says, For the Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You get it? Everyone. 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who is stuck down the mine, the only escape, the only option of them coming out is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed. And that contains within it the power, boom, to save anyone. See, as I said at the start, people who don't know Jesus, they are down the mine, as we were once upon a time in our lives as well. And this world, as it's rallied and informed by people who are down the mine, is an increasingly hostile place for Christians to live, isn't it? It can be challenging. You know, sovereign grace churches have spread out across the world. I've come face to face with the realities of what all that means. In some of the countries where we have churches now, there are Christians who are literally risking their lives for sharing the gospel. Places like northern India, places like Somalia, places like Pakistan. I was just with a brother in March of this year from Pakistan, who's our main leader in Pakistan, and he was just telling me, just sort of out of, out of the blue, that, oh yeah, it's been a difficult few weeks, uh, because just a couple of weeks ago, Muslims shot in through our house, um, shot a gun through our house, and the bullet just missed my wife by a few millimeters. Okay. And he's just talking about this. And I said, well, what did you do? And he said, well, we just gathered around the kitchen table and we prayed that the Lord would keep filling us with courage, that we would keep moving forward because we've got to keep telling people about Jesus. We get to serve now in countries with brothers and sisters who are greatly opposed for their faith by different religions. That same brother was telling me, he's actually a principal in a school, and he was telling me that the Muslims keep putting the Quran over the fence all the time. So when the kids come, it could be there. So he goes in at 5 a.m. every morning and just tidies it all up and burns it so they can hear about Christ and him crucified instead. Some of the churches that we now get to plant and be a part of, men and women are risking their lives for telling people about Jesus. Some of the countries we minister in, they're risking imprisonment. Places like Nepal where it's illegal to tell people about Jesus. Does it stop them? Nope. Just last year, they baptized over 100 people. But it's illegal in their country to tell people about Jesus. Sovereign Grace actually has part of our Asia-Pacific fund set aside to helping people get out of prison because at different times, they do get arrested, and then we help to make all their legal cases so they can be released. Places like Belarus. Two years ago, one of our pastor's wives in Belarus was involved in the Belarusian protest. Not actually the actual protest herself, but this 26-year-old pastor's wife was holding up a Bible verse in Belarusian just to try and minister to the crowd, to try and tell them about Jesus. The challenge was the secret police took pictures of all the people that had those. And two months later, her house got broken into. Her and her husband were in bed. She was dragged out of bed. He was left alone. She was dragged out of bed. She was taken off to prison. Why? Well, for being an enemy of the state. For telling people about Jesus. You shouldn't be doing that. We'll leave your husband, but we'll take you. She was in prison for two months. She was told that she could be released for 10 days. And after that, she would need to come back in for two years of hard labor because of what she did. But she seeks to just tell people about Jesus. Proclaim his name. In some of the countries we get to serve in now, people are risking their lives for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. For others, they are risking imprisonment. And in other countries, particularly like ours in the West, Christians are also increasingly being persecuted, not by way of imprisonment or risking their lives, but I think increasingly being shunned and canceled by those around them. That's also persecution. And it's also hard. 
You see, there's no doubt in my mind that in the West there is an overarching worldview which causes us all troubles and difficulties. We all live in the season and the age of authenticity, which basically means the mantra of the day is that we need to be true to ourselves. And whatever it means to be true to ourselves, I'll do me, you do you, that's what we must do. We must be true to ourselves. Everyone from Oprah to Beyonce, Ellen DeGeneres to Steph Curry to every student body president in the West is spouting off this type of reality. you just got to be true to yourself. And the world operates on this way. The Western world operates accordingly all the time. You've just got to be true to yourself, apart from if you're a Christian. Because you can't be true to your values, because if you are, you're a bigot and you're a hater because of what you stand for. Because when you speak, you might hurt people, you might upset people, you might offend people, and that's not right to do. So we're all going to be true to ourselves apart from you. It's a challenge. Christians are increasingly being shunned and criticized and canceled. The concept of celibacy then seems at best outdated and at worst oppressive. Marriage in all its forms is no longer just between a man and a woman. You can just make it up as you go along. Gender is just choose your own adventure. I mean, apparently there's hundreds of options for that. And anybody thinks it's just a man and a woman, that's ridiculous. You know, the reality is teachers in schools can wear rainbow bracelets. They can have rainbow flags. They can identify themselves with any pronouns they want. But what a Christian teacher cannot do is wear a cross or pray with a student and share the gospel because that would just be wrong. We increasingly live in environments, even in the West, where we are being shunned and canceled for our faith. Being a Christian in the world can be hard. It is increasingly being ruled by people with the ideology that are down the mine. And God, in His grace, He has sent us to them. And as Paul looks us in the eye this morning, he wants us to understand, hey, listen, the gospel is a powerful and potent weapon. These people may feel they seem formidable to you, but the gospel has the power of God within it and can change their lives in a moment. The gospel, as it's proclaimed, you have nothing to fear. Just keep telling a people about Christ and Him crucified. Because the gospel is the power of God and the salvation of all who believe. And no one knew that, humanly speaking, better, I think, than the Apostle Paul himself. When we encounter the Apostle Paul, the author of the book of Romans, prior to salvation, Paul was the church's greatest opponent. He hated Christ and he hated all Christians with a passion and resolve. He was, in effect, a Christian terrorist when we encounter him in the Bible. He hated you. He would have hated you. Your church would have been a particular problem to him. He would have hated everything you stand for as Christians. When we encounter the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 7, we see him holding people's coats at Stephen's martyrdom in hearty agreement with all that is taking place. Hey, I'll hold your jacket while you go stone that Christian. He hated everything we stand for, so much so that he grows to the, to the great high priest and he says, listen, I want to go after these Christians. Since Stephen's stoning, they've started fleeing. They're going to places like Damascus. I want to go get them. Give me permission to go get them. The men and the women and the kids, I'll drag them back and we'll sort them out here. And yet while he was on the way to Damascus, while he was busy ravaging the church, in Acts chapter 9, he encounters the risen Christ. 
as he is moving along, heading towards where he can persecute more Christians, he encounters the risen Christ, and boom, the glories of the gospel come alive in his life. In that moment, he goes from a gospel persecutor to a gospel proclaimer. He goes from a hater to Christians to joining their ranks, and all I want to do is tell people about Jesus. My friends, that is the power of the gospel. That is the power of the risen Christ. That is the power of what can happen when the gospel is preached to people. When the gospel is proclaimed, the apostle Paul was the most unlikely person ever to be a Christian, but he was no match for the power of God. And in a moment, his life was changed. The gospel is a powerful and potent weapon. And I want to encourage you, the gospel is a powerful and potent weapon still to this day, is it not? It changes people's lives. You know, just last year, I was with my friend Jeffrey Joe, who leads our churches in the Philippines. And I was asking him more about how his church started, and in particular, how the group of churches in the Mindanao Islands got their start in the Philippines. And so he started to tell me the story of a young lady called Lily. See, in 1995, this local church in Manila, they used to have Bring a Friend Sunday. And it was designed as different Sundays where you could bring friends along. And so somebody invited this lady called Lily. And Jeff was telling me he still remembers the moment she arrived. She sat just a few rows in. She was there, a rather short lady, blonde, spiky hair. And she was there with her girlfriend at the time, who she was living with. And so he starts sharing the gospel. And he said, to start off with, she seemed really resistant, like not interested at all. But by the end, he could tell that the Lord has been at work in her heart. And so he goes up to Lily and he says, hey, nice to meet you. My name's Jeff. And she said, I've never heard anybody tell me about Jesus before. And I want what you've got. Help me to put my faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior because that's what I want. And so he starts discipling her and befriending her. And she gives her life to Jesus Christ. She became a Christian. And that caused great animosity between her and her female partner. So much so that obviously she realized, I need to move out. I can't carry on in this sexual immorality. So her partner got really violent with her. So Jeff had to start hiding Lily in different members' houses all across the church because she was in danger of her life. Well, eventually this girlfriend just left the scene. She left Lily to it, realizing that she wasn't coming back. And so Lily just gave herself to the Lord and serving the church there in Manila. And then eventually she said to Pastor Jeff, Pastor, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to go back to the Mindanao Islands where I'm from because my family don't know Jesus. Would it be okay if I go? Would you send me? And so he said, well, of course, Lily. You need to go and tell them about Jesus. So she gets on a plane and she goes to her family. And she starts to explain to her family about Jesus, about what had happened to her. And one by one, all of her family start putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. One by one, if you've ever met a Filipino family, there's hundreds of them. So one by one, they're just telling them about Jesus. And all these folks are coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so they want, they, look, we need to go to the cousins. We need to go to the aunties and uncles. So she's doing it. She's doing it like a tour. She's Billy Graham. She's doing this tour. They just starts telling people about Jesus. And they're all coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. She's telling them about Jesus and she's declaring the glories of the gospel. And on one occasion, she's staying in the home and in one of these villages... And there's a young boy that comes into town that looks lost. He doesn't look like he knows where he's going. He's 12 years old, and he's from the Manobo tribe. Well, the Manobo tribe are a tribe that live in the hills of the Bindanao Islands, and they are like what Elizabeth Elliot was trying to reach. They are headhunters. 
They carry their spears all the time. They're still there to this day. But this young boy had got sick. He was disorientated. He was obviously all over the place. And she said, hey, come to my house. Let me care for you. Which she did. And so she told this boy about Jesus. She not only did she want to care for him physically, she wanted to care for him spiritually. She told him about Jesus. She told him about the gospel. And this young 12-year-old boy gave his life to following Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. At which point, this young boy says, hey, listen, will you come to my tribe and tell them about Jesus? And Lily's like, yeah. yeah." There was a challenge because if you don't get invited into that tribe, they're going to spear you and kill you. So what does she do? She's very wise. She calls her pastors in Manila and says, I've invited to the Manobo tribe. Will you come with me? (laughs) Imagine getting that call. Well, they agree. Lily will come with you. Let's risk our lives for the sake of Christ and trust him. And so they arrive and they all get ushered in along with this young boy. They go up the mountain. There's there men with spears. And this young boy explains, listen, stop. These are my friends. They've got something that we need to know. They have a story to tell. And so they gather the tribe and they sit together. And Pastor Jeff starts telling the gospel, and he notices as he continues to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that the tribe leader has tears running down his face. And there and then he puts his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. You know, today we have 12 churches in the Mindanao Islands that are all seeking to be adopted by Sovereign Grace Churches. And incredibly, all of them came through that pathway of Lily becoming a Christian on a guest Sunday. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, that's the power of the gospel. That's happened in our lifetime, where the gospel is being preached and proclaimed. God in his grace is opening blind eyes. You never know when it's going to go off. Sometimes you just got to keep going, right? You keep going to telling people about Jesus. I remember when I was running Alpha, when I used to live in the UK, and I was running this Alpha course, and I'm just sharing the gospel like every week. I mean, there's 12 weeks, and they're meant to be different topics. I kind of just went for the same one every week, just tell them about Christ and Him crucified. So I'm telling them every week about Jesus. And then there was this girl, and every week she looked kind of bored, but she kept coming back. And then on a week five, I just tell her again about Jesus. We're proclaiming Jesus. We're proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. And she gives her life powerfully. I'll never forget it. Claire Colick was her name. She gives her life to the Lord. And her comments were this. I'm all in for Jesus. I want to follow the Jesus you're talking about. Why didn't you tell me this before? I said, Claire, I've been telling you every week. Just this is the day that in your life, God, boom, made you alive. This is the day when the gospel came alive in your heart. You don't know as you're proclaiming Christ and Him crucified when that weapon's going to go off. But what you can do is keep attaching it to people's lives and then trusting it to the Lord. That's His work, not ours. The gospel has the power to save anybody. We will never be able to argue anybody in. We'll never be able to nice anybody in. But the gospel has the power of God to save people in a moment. And so no wonder that we have the charge in our lives to go to people. And that's my second point, the gospel's charge. Look with me again at verse 13 through 15. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him of whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
You know, it's clear in God's word that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever you are, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will wonderfully be saved. But what is also clear in Paul's questioning is who's going to tell them? All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they going to call upon the name in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how are they to hear about him without someone preaching? And I suppose, how are they to preach unless they've been sent? You know, for many years of my life, I would have read that and thought, oh, it's for preachers. That's what pastors do. But it's when you pay more attention to the text, you realize his emphasis there is on who has been sent. Well, who has been sent? You have been sent. Who's going to tell them? We must tell them. We've all been sent as Christians. In John chapter 20, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I now send you. In Matthew 28, He's talking to all of us. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. My friends, it is us. We have been called. Who is going to go to your neighbors and your work and your colleges and your communities? You. He sent you by his grace and for his glory to go to them. And in all honesty, this call on our lives is wonderfully provoking, isn't it? You hear stories about Lily, and you hear stories about different things, and you're like, yes, let me at them. But <laughs> then we find ourselves doing it. It can be quite daunting, can it not? At least I do. I find it difficult. It can be challenging sometimes. It can be a daunting call on our lives. It's a sobering call, and I think there's reasons for that. I mean, one of the greatest challenges I think we can all face at times is the tendency and temptation towards the fear of man. It can be hard, isn't it? I struggle with it. It can be difficult at times to proclaim Christ clearly. I mean, why is it that I can speak in front of lots of people and feel fine, but then speak in front of one person and my tongue feels like it's hanging down by my kneecaps? It's like, what's happened? Because you can feel yourself getting nervous, fearing what people may think. I think we can all struggle with that with different times, can't we? Not too long ago, I heard a story of a young United States police officer who at his final exam of training had three very easy questions and then the following hard ones. See if you can't see yourself in this story somewhere. Here's his question. He says, you're on patrol in Brooklyn when an explosion occurs in a gas main in a nearby street. Okay. On an investigation, you find that a large hole has been blown in the sidewalk and there is an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there is a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. You recognize the woman as the wife of your divisional supervisor, who is supposed to be presently away in Texas. A passing motorist stops to offer you assistance, and you realize that he is a man who is wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly, a man runs out of a nearby house, shouting that his wife is expecting a baby and that the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. Another man is crying for help, having been blown into an adjacent canal by the explosion, and he cannot swim. <laughs> That's an awkward one. The question then simply went like this. Describe in a few words what actions you would take. <laughs> oh, my. Well, the officer, he thought for a moment, he picked up his pen, and then wrote the following. Well... I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. 
I love his honesty. <laughs> I would do nothing. I would take off my uniform and I would mingle with the crowd. My friends, as Christians, how tempting can it be post-Sunday morning to do the same thing? To take off our uniform and just mingle with the crowd. You get into difficult conversations, awkward conversations, how tempting it is to just take off our uniform and just mingle with the crowd. Listen to me. The tendency and temptation towards the fear of man is real, isn't it? It can be a challenge. Particularly when you know if I respond in this moment, I could so easily get canceled and shunned. This could cost me big time. We feel our heart beating. We feel the fear of man. I think another challenge that we all face at different times is a tendency and temptation towards a love of comfort. When comfort and the fear of man get together, they're a formidable opponent to the global mission. And we all live in countries, as I certainly do, where comfort is a big thing. I can so get drawn in on that. I remember some couple of years ago now, my wife and I were in a hotel in Sydney. It was a beautiful hotel, and we're overlooking the opera house. I'm just in a happy place. And I sit back in my chair at one point, and talk about out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I sit back in my chair with my arms out, and I just said, my dear, this is where I belong. I did. And she laughs at me. She's mocking me. She thinks I'm joking. It's like, certainly, I'm not joking. I actually swallowed it so that not only is this where I belong, but look around. These are my people. I mean, that was the moment. It was just one of those moments, just candid reality. I, I love comfort. It's so attractive to me. I just want to be comfortable. Listen, there's no, there's no harm. It is a good thing to enjoy the gifts that God has given us. That isn't the problem. The problem comes when we seek to smuggle comfort into our walk with the Lord and start to assume it and expect it as if my life should be comfortable if I know Christ. We claim to not believe in the health and wealth gospel, but sometimes we live as if we imbibe it. I just want to be comfortable. Just leave me alone. Francis Schaeffer once said, In the world, we're always standing on quicksand. And we are. We're always being pulled into the ideologies in which we live in. Most of our cultures in the West, there is an idol of comfort. And when we struggle with the fear of man, and when we struggle with that comfort idol, those things are total antithesis to global mission and gospel mission. They stop it. But here's the reality, my friends. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to your communities and your colleges and your workplaces and your neighbors, who's going to tell them? You must tell them. You have been called and set apart by God himself to tell them about Christ and him crucified. C.H. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies and if they would perish, then let them do so with their arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, then let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Amen? It's the people that we want to be. We want to be on mission, telling people about Jesus, telling people about Christ and Him crucified, understanding as we do so, the gospel has the power to save people to bring them out of the mind, to open their eyes, to change their lives. Who's going to tell them? We must tell them. 
And that comes with a privilege, which is briefly my final point, the gospel's privilege, number three. Just look at those last few words of verse 15. He says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful. You know, in Old Testament times, when a nation's men went out to war and were victorious, a young man, a herald or a runner, would have the privilege of being sent to run on ahead of the returning army, the victorious army, and to inform those waiting that victory had been won. So that young man, he would run with all his might, and as people were waiting in the city for their return, he'd shout out, they've won, they've won, victory! And what Paul wants to help us see is that privilege is now ours. As Christians, as followers of Christ, we get to tell of a victory like none other. We get to tell of a victory of the greatest rescue mission ever told, and of a king who lived a perfect life and who died in our place and declared, it is finished. And as he declared it is finished, his victory over Satan was finished. His suffering was finished. He had in that moment drank the cup of God's wrath to the full, meaning through faith in him we can be forgiven of our sin and redeemed and adopted into the family of God and can know with absolute assurance that heaven is our home. We get to tell of a victory like no other. Christ has won. And we get to proclaim his name to anybody who will listen. What a privilege. For how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Aren't you glad that at some point in your life, someone had beautiful feet running towards you? And now it's our turn. It's our turn to write the story. It's our turn to have those beautiful feet and it's our turn to tell people about Jesus. You know, in all of our communities all the way around the world, there are hundreds and thousands of people that are down the mine. Hundreds of thousands of people that don't know Jesus, that are cut off from Jesus, that are hostile in mind, that are uninterested in the Lord. And they don't even know it. Well, brothers and sisters, my friends, would we go to them? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It is a powerful and potent weapon in their hands. And in his sovereignty and in his kindness, he's called us to go and given us the privilege to grow. And so, my friends, would we go? Would it be said of you in your life, Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, how beautiful are the feet? of those who bring good news. May we give our lives to telling people about Jesus, to proclaiming his name, to carrying this weapon in our hands and declaring it wherever we can. And then may we watch and see all that the Lord may do. We need to let down our nets and then we watch and we see what he will do. May this be our story and may all the glory go to him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for this great salvation. And Lord, you cannot talk about mission without rehearsing our own stories. Lord, for each one of us in the room, we were once upon a time down the mine. We were far from you. We were uninterested in you. We were hostile in mind. We were angry with you. 
And yet in your mercy and your grace, you came after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. You came and you gave your life away so that we could be forgiven and redeemed and adopted into your family. So that we could be assured that heaven would be our home. Lord, it's all your incredible doing. You're the one that opened our eyes to it. And you are the one that sent that individual with beautiful feet into our lives at just the right time to proclaim a gospel through which you opened our eyes and saved us. Oh, Father, would you help us now to be the same people that came towards us? Would you help us to have beautiful feet? Would you help us to go into our communities, into our neighborhoods, into our campuses, and tell more and more people about you? And would you save them by your grace? just like you did us. In your precious and holy name, Lord. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.